Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. At the Mojo Radio Show, we scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my family. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fickendee. This is Kate Fletcher, Kate Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. Oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Rocktober is now done, and they, as we say in the business, in the can. Robbo, great Rocktober. Bit sad to see it's over another year. No, it comes and it comes so slowly and goes so quickly, doesn't it? It's a shame. <laughs> Some super impressive guests coming up on the show, and I guess. Out of Rocktober, we're rolling into our summer series. It's coming up shortly. We will be taking our big red bus to the beach and we'll be setting up live at one of the world's most iconic beaches of Bondi Beach, our summer series. And our first guest is going to be making our return to the show, the author of... Do you remember John Zaratsky, Jay-Z, who wrote Make Time? Jay-Z in the house. Yes, indeed. So... Jay-Z will be joining us in our mobile studio on the promenade at Bondi Beach, just near the pavilion there. And the reason we bring it up, because we had to rent the gear. So if you want to help us build our pop-up OB concept, support us on Patreon. Details are in the show notes. You can search us on patreon.com. Now, Chris D., Chris, that's a good name, isn't it? Jay-Z and Chris D. Chris <laughs> D came on board. He wants to help us make it happen. So thank you, Chris oh, D, thanks, for Chris. jumping on board the big red bus that is heading one way, and that's to Bondi. Now, Chris, make your way on board the bus, mate. Head to the back. You can't sit in the back row, but head towards the back of the bus. You have to step over AP. Uh, just <laughs> mind the speed and bump. Ignore the snoring. <laughs> and the other thing, which is really exciting... I got confirmation this week that also will be joining us at Bondi Beach later in summer is the legend, New York Times bestselling author James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits. Now, he'll be coming down under. That's a big one. And he'll be uh, joining us. So once we get our studio gear, hopefully, uh, check us out on Patreon. We use Patreon because we have no sponsors, sadly. (laughs) No advertisers, sadly. 
and we fund everything ourselves. But thanks to our friends uh, who've supported us on Patreon, it keeps the show rolling and we can start to buy some decent gear to have these. And I think we're going to have a bit of reputation of when international guests visit our little country, take them to Bondi, and then we uh, have a have a doseki afterwards. Well, you know why all these guys are coming down, don't you? It's because they've heard that we're doing this and they want the free fish and chips. That's what's going on. And the doseki. <laughs> now, listen, we can't move on. I've got to, I've got to go back to last week's show just quickly. During the show last week, you threw me a pop quiz about cowbell. And there was a bit of controversy about one of my answers. Lola, can you just play that piece for me? I'm on it. And the other one that comes to mind is Led Zeppelin. Um, what's the name of the song? Um, oh, Good Times, Bad Times. Led Zeppelin has cowbell in it. Uh, negative. Oh, really? Now, as an international radio imager to the biggest stations on the planet. I took that a little personally because my music cred is something that I base my my business on. So I was going to say, as an international cowbell specialist. As an international cowbell specialist. <laughs> no, so so I just want to play you this. Just hang on one second. The Lola, Molly Meldrum you... of cowbells. <laughs> Lola, can you play it, please? Can you play Good Times, Bad Times by Led Zeppelin, please? <laughs> Now, I'm no cowbell specialist, but that sounds like cowbell to me. <laughs> Do you know, I had an idea on the weekend. I was on the tractor. Seeing as we have our Rocktober riffs on Spotify, mm-hmm. let's build a Mojo radio show <laughs> cowbell, cowbell list. And let's put in all the songs from the top okay. 10 I sent you. And we can yep. put in that Zep song. Yeah. Let's build... The Legends of Cowbells tracks, Blue Oyster Cult, bit of Melancan, bit of Zeppelin, because that, my friend, that will top the charts on Spotify. (laughs) The Mojo Radio Show. So in the course of any given week, not only am I researching the people that we have as guests on the show, but I'm also doing stuff for myself, stuff that I can take away for me personally and stuff I can apply to the people that I'm working with. And one guy I found who's a thought leader in performance is Philip McKernan. Now, I heard this guy. I loved it. I took a lot from it and thought he'd be perfect for our show. He, He's the guy that gets behind the curtain. And we have these stories we tell ourselves, but quite often these stories are getting in the way. They create roadblocks in and out of work. And they're the roadblocks. Sometimes they're unseen. And that's what I love about Philip's stuff is that he really helps find clarity to discover these roadblocks that sometimes are unseen, but they're holding us back from our dreams in and out of work. And he believes that the value, fulfillment in life comes from our relationships, obviously our work, but most importantly, the relationship we have to ourselves. He's agreed to be on the show. He's with us today. Philip, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. When when people meet you for the first time and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? You know, <clears throat> I've obsessed about that on and off for years. Um, I used to drive myself nuts trying to come up with the best 30-second, 10-second elevator speech that I could. And what I do now is I try not to tell people what I do and I try to show them what I do. Not not in real time, but I give them kind of stories about how my work works. Um, and really what I've done is I've let go of trying to encapsulate what I do in a sentence or two. And I allow people who experience my work to explain that for me through how they show up in the world, if that makes any sense. It does. And something I'm curious about is I've heard 
you say that sometimes when you tell those stories or speak to people, you can be quite confronting. So if I asked your wife, Pauline, what you do, what would she say? She'd say I'm a pain in the ass. I think that's probably <laughs> what she'd say, for, first and foremost. Uh, but that he's very good at what he does as, uh, in being a pain in the ass. I basically hold a mirror up to people. Um, I'm, the, I'm the coach, the guide, uh, the confidant that, that successful people come to who basically have you know, achieved certain degree of success in their lives. And they're finally beginning to realize that actually they've missed, they've missed a step, or at least that's what they think. Or they've missed a part of the puzzle, which is basically something of meaning. Um, I'm the guy who helps people connect very deep, deeply with themselves, with the people around them, and meaningful work so they can make an impact in the world. Um, I'm also working with sports you know, you know, teams and stuff like that. What's interesting, I haven't shared this story for a very long time, is about I run an experience every year in Ireland. It's a week-long experience. And my wife came to me about six years ago and said, hey, I'd love to come on, on Brave Soul. And I said, oh my God, it'll be brilliant to have you help out. That'll be fantastic. Like, I really need some help. And she goes, no, I'd like to come as a client. To which I replied, <laughs> hell no, not a chance. You're too close. <laughs> And uh, long story short, she came to the experience. Um, obviously, I'm going to say this anyway. You would expect me to say this, but I think it's genuinely true. She had a, a really profound week. And at the end of the week, somebody said to her, now you can finally describe what your husband does. And she says, I'm actually not more confused. It's very hard to put into words that everybody can grasp. It's a very individual journey uh, into ourselves and therefore out of ourselves into the world. If I put a few things together there. You mentioned the word steps. What you do is quite profound. What's really fascinating is that you you had this talent from a very young age. Like your mum would even say that at a young age, people would come to you for whatever reason. They would go to Philip to sort out particular problems because you had the ability to be able to feel what was going on. To take me back to that time, what was that like? Why, why was your mum able to see that? Yeah, I think sometimes people around us see the things in ourselves that we don't want to see or we can't self-identify for whatever reason. Um, the challenge with family is when they, when they feed that back to you sometimes, you don't believe them because you think they just want the best for you or they're, they're telling you something that you want to hear or they're trying to make you feel good. I think if I look back, there was this, always this sense that not if somebody came to me with something, I'd be able to have the answer. I, there was never that sense. There, there's not even that, that sense today. But there's always been this deep-rooted sense within myself that anybody who came to me, whatever challenge they had, that the only person in the room that had the answer to that was them. And what I was very good at doing was holding space for them, which might sound very simple, but actually holding space for somebody, a loved one, an intimate relationship, a, a son, a business partner, um, holding space for something, for people to just to be who they can be, to be the person they're meant to be, to self-discover, analyze, you know, what's going on for them with some very simple, authentic, uh, intuitive questions and challenges. And I feel that that is very simple, but I think it's been overly complicated. And I think that's essentially what I do. Um, it might sound very simple, but, and it, it obviously takes quite a bit of work and care. But I think in essence, that's really what I do. And I, and I, and I hold that space for other people to you know, find the clarity that they are seeking, but yet they are the only ones that have it. How beautiful is that you hold space for somebody? What an honor to know that you're talking with somebody who's holding space it's just a beautiful premise. You, you, the, the word sense, when you talk about it, Philip, and it's something you've said a few times on the show already today, 
when you get a sense that somebody's not being truthful to you or not being truthful to themselves, what do you feel? What what physically do you feel? Yeah, I've never been asked that question. Um, so so bear with me as I help you know try to navigate that as best I can. But you, you, if I could just go back a second, not not to try and escape, but you said it's you know it's a it's an honor to to talk to somebody. It's actually you nailed exactly how I feel. Um, it, it it's just such a privilege to be in a position to hold space. And I can sit here and impress you with the the list of all the well-known clients and the sports teams and everything else. It's nothing to do with that. It's just holding space for anybody and really holding space where they can choose to step in. And, and again, you nailed it by when they're not being honest with themselves because I'm there not to take it personally. As a, as a coach, your your job is to to identify where your curiosity stops serving the individual. And I think that's something that a lot of us miss in the world of coaching. Um, what do I feel? I just, I look for, you know, there's, there's this, this idea of listening in the world that if people could just listen more, I think we'd have a better world. People would be able to communicate correctly. I don't think it's about listening at all. It's about hearing. And, you know, people say something and it's, it's almost being able to bypass the words that are coming at you and to try to connect with what are they trying to actually say or what are they trying not to say? What are they trying to escape almost? And that, well, how I describe that is very simply hearing, not listening. And that is, is being able to try to emotionally connect with the individual, to put yourself in their shoes. And it just becomes very organic from that point on in terms of whether they're telling themselves the truth or whether they're just unable to get into a conversation uh, because it's painful, because our brains are designed to protect us. So we, we, we avoid stuff, not because we're out of integrity, but because we're trying to protect ourselves. I'm going to try and bring a few threads together here because something you just said I find absolutely fascinating. I interviewed a lady called Professor Charlene Nemeth from the University of California who wrote a book called No, The Power of Dissent in a World that Just Wants to Get Along. And she spent 20 or 25 years studying dissent. And her thesis showed how important it was. It was important to be that person who would provoke in any situation. We need that for progress and growth. When you are able to get a sense that someone's not being truthful to themselves or to, or to you, in a way, you, I, I suspect you kind of almost have to dissent and you have to pull them up and perhaps ask a, a different question. Philip, how do you go about doing that in such a way that it's not about you, it's about them? to take the conflict out of it, to know that this is an opportunity for them to look at themselves, their world, how they're thinking, how they're feeling. Because quite often, I guess sometimes when you're doing that, people think that you've got an ulterior motive. Yeah, I think they do. Um, I mean, I, I just spoke to to somebody yesterday, actually, who who has got a, a, a really, they don't need, ever need to work another day in their life. And they're staying in the business, the monster that they've created. Um, and monsters can be good and bad. Uh, they can have good days and bad days. But this monster overall is, is a bit of a challenge for this individual. Um, and I think it's, it's coming at a price. And the two things that, that became very apparent in the conversation is that this gentleman has basically cited and he's drawn a conclusion that, you know, the more money he makes, the more impact he's able to make in the world which I know theoretically sounds incredibly, you know, wise and, and, and obvious and intellectual. 
However, what cost is it coming at for him, number one? Number two is, if he didn't have this business, what is the impact he could make on his, on, on his, on his own, uh, you know, with his own personality, with his own time, with his own gifts of the, in this world, which, of course, he's never going to get to. But the reason that he stays, the primary reason he stays is he's got this beautiful story that he's been telling himself for a number of years that the 700 people that he employs, he is responsible for. And no one has ever challenged that idea. And actually, a lot of leaders, entrepreneurs, and we're all leaders at some level, whether we're leading in our home, leading in the bike shop, leading as a bus driver, we're all leaders and we all have that capacity to lead and impact other people around us. But most leaders say, I have an open door policy, which is complete horseshit. They have an open door policy as long as what you're walking in the door to tell them they agree with or that doesn't undermine them or doesn't cite them as maybe being, you know, not necessarily a complete human that you're somewhat flawed. And then I think we have an open door policy. So a lot of these very successful people don't get challenged. And it's not a case of sitting in front and whatever they say, you hit the bullshit button. People just think I sit there and just say, no, that's not true. No, bullshit. Yeah. It is way more sophisticated, but way more simple at the same time. And I said to him basically yesterday, and obviously we've had a few phone calls and and, and engagements, and I just said to him, but what if that narrative that you're sharing with me, what if it isn't true? And he goes, no one has ever challenged that before. And I said, well, fuck, it's better. Let's challenge it now so it doesn't turn into a monumental regret five or 10 years from now. So let's just dissect that story that you're telling yourself. And what we got to within seven, eight, 10 minutes of, because he was open to it. I said, if you got rid of that business tomorrow and everything was, everyone was looked after, even if you sold your business and gave your entire fortune back to the people to make sure that they were cared for, you would start something tomorrow morning with two people or 2,000 people and you'd have the same level of responsibility. So it's nothing to do or very little to do with the story that you've been telling yourself and it's to do with how responsibility shows up in your life and your relationship to responsibility in this world. And then we got into what I would call the real conversation. You said there was a a difference between listening and hearing, yet I've heard you say that when you were a child, when you were a kid, that you felt, once again, you felt it, you felt you were not heard as a child. How, How are you going about ensuring your own children feel as though they are truly being heard by you and Pauline? You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Yeah, phenomenal question. Um, I think that the challenge for a lot of parents, including myself, is is sometimes we try to parent 
whether it was conscious or, not, or otherwise, we end up parenting exactly the way we were parented, um, which is not necessarily the best thing. And then the other one, which I see way more commonly, is we go to the other extreme and we work overly hard to make sure that our kids do not grow up in the environment or the negative parts of our environment that we ourselves experience. And I feel that that is even more detrimental because what ends up happening is, as I always say, you know, and, it's, and it sounds obnoxious, but there's real depth and thought going into this obnoxious statement. My view is with kids, no matter what you do, you're going to F them up. In other words, overhug them and they're going to be in counseling and therapy. Or never <laughs> hug them and they're going to be in counseling and therapy. But it's, 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 it's what is the pendulum if it landed in the middle? In other words, what's your own individual truth? So how I navigate that is I don't have a very clean answer for you. I struggle with it, right? Quite frankly, it's probably the one area I struggle with. Yet I, I received the most extraordinary note from somebody who's been working with kids for 30 years. And he says he's never once experienced children look at their father the way they do with me. So while I know I do a lot of things very well, I do struggle. And I'm very concerned about becoming complacent with my own role as a parent. I always undermine how good I am as a parent with, with my kids because today I'm going to be great. I'll do something tomorrow that will retract a lot of the good stuff I've done. We give them a voice as best we can. So when we moved to Boulder, we didn't just do the parent thing that I was experienced, I experienced as a kid where, hey, we're moving to, to Boulder. We, in actual fact, engaged our children in the conversation from day one. Our kids, Charlie, my oldest is 10 in particular, you know, had issues with school. And rather than saying, that's just the way it has to be, get over it, pull your socks up, or we can look at a different school with the same system. We gave them a voice. And this year we just pulled them out of school, not because, not purely because we wanted to, because we collectively wanted to try something. So as best we can, we, we give them a voice and we, we, we bring them into all of these conversations. And the other thing that we do, there's probably a lot more to it, but the other thing we do is we also allow our kids to see our own individual pain and, and failures. So my, my, my kids will ask me if I come back and do a keynote speech or a workshop, how was it, dad? And sometimes it's not great. Sometimes I'm not feeling it. Sometimes I made a mistake. Sometimes I said something I shouldn't have said, whatever. I'll tell them. And there, I allow them to see the fact that dad is not perfect and therefore doesn't have all the answers, which in, in turn invites them to, uh, to, to, to be able to you know, see the flaws they have and not to necessarily hide them or to emulate to this father who they think is their hero and is, 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 hasn't got his fundamental flaws. So vulnerability is probably a big cornerstone of, of our home life with our kids on a, on a consistent basis. And by not being vulnerable as parents, are we kind of almost being a disservice to our children? Yes, hundred percent. We're we're lying. We're we're inadvertently lying to ourselves and our kids, and we're creating this dynamic that vulnerability uh, because we're not showing it. Well, I mean, if you fundamentally if you fundamentally believe as a parent that vulnerability is weakness and it should not be have any place in life, well, then you might see the world very different than I do. Obviously. But if you do believe that vulnerability has a place in the world, what I would ask people to do is to not pick their battles with vulnerability, to choose to be vulnerable in certain situations and not others. And we do that because we're afraid of the outcomes. We're, we, we, we're not vulnerable in work and we're vulnerable partially at home. We're not vulnerable with men or women because we're afraid of getting our hearts broken. We're not vulnerable with our kids, but we cry behind, behind closed doors. Um, what ends up happening is we create this sense of perfection inadvertently. And it's not what we say, it's what we don't say. We also create this environment where if we don't bring vulnerability into the conversation every so often, 
we don't really give our kids the opportunity to bring vulnerability to the table. We expect them to come with their problems, but we are not necessarily sharing ours. Now, there's a time and a place, and I ask you to pour your guts out on the table to a four-year-old every day. But I just think there's a place to allow the kids to see your humanity and therefore invite them to be the same. Something you said at the start of the show, which I think relates back to parent, a leader in a business, kids that we've covered so far on the show. And quite often it sounds like your role is to draw out the real story that we're telling ourselves, is that they have a story, but then your gift is being able to get beyond that to find the real story. Tell me... Tell me about a story that you told yourself that held you back in your own personal life because we hear a lot about guys like yourself who are successful doing great work. Quite often we don't turn the spotlight around to say that you've applied this to yourself because you are a guy that puts a rubber on the road. You do a lot of self-reflection. What What is the story that you used to tell yourself that held you back in your own life in some way, Philip? That I can't write. So one of my, one of the one of the challenges that I grew up as a kid because I was in an environment in school where the school didn't understand dyslexia, um, and obviously the teachers had their own you know version of that. They thought I was just stupid and lazy, and and made a point of telling me that. So for the longest time, and I'm not I'm 40. Jesus, I always forget my age. I think I'm 47, 46 or 47. Who cares? And I'm not talking about 30 years ago. I'm talking about five years. I can't remember exactly, but about five years ago. I still had this idea that I just can't write because of my dyslexia and because of all of my own challenges. And I was telling that story brilliantly because it allowed me, therefore, not to execute on the very thing that scared the shit out of me, which is writing a book. Um, But really, the truth was partially dyslexia, but also I was afraid to put a book out into into the world because I was afraid for it to be judged. Um, And and, and that is actually the premise of of a new book I'm writing called One Last Book, which basically is, is, you know, you know, a lot of us have a book in our back pocket that we're we're considering writing that we think will sell. Others then have a book that's in their heart. I want the book that lies beyond both of those, which is the greatest extension and expression of who you are, which is the most vulnerable part of who you are. Yet that's the one that will probably impact you and the world more significantly. And I was telling myself that story for the longest time until I woke up and literally, and it was one morning, you often hear these stories, like it was one moment or one, and it's typically never, it's a combination of things that, that, collide together. But there was a morning I woke up and maybe it was years of processing, maybe it was whatever. And I and I said to myself, boy, you can write, you just can't spell. And the spelling is not something I'm really in control unless I want to go and try to spell, which I have no interest in spending the time that the computer can do that for me. But I can write. And it was an excuse and a story I was telling myself. And it just simply wasn't true. And since then, I've written two books, and I'm probably going to write another six or seven um, in the next, you know, ten years. You know, it's fascinating. I heard a guy just yesterday who, in a couple of weeks' time, is going to address his team. Very successful business that he leads. It's his company. He built it. And he has been nervous as about getting up in front of his team. Yet when he talks about the backstory, where they've been, the future, he he doesn't miss a beat. Philip, he's just so articulate, so passionate. He leans in, he smiles. And as I talked to this guy over a cup of coffee, I said, why, why do you feel that you may make a mistake or all the language is about all the things that might go wrong? And he said, Gary, when I was a kid in school, we had Bible class and the teacher pointed at me and said, read from the Bible. And he said, I was daydreaming looking out the window. I had no clue where in the Bible we had to read from. 
So I just picked a page. And as I read it, I made lots of mistakes. And the kids laughed and the teacher said I was an idiot, made me sit down. He said, to this day, I carry that story with me. It's, it's it's fascinating how somebody can set up that story and then we don't let go of it. How do we reframe that story? Well, let, let me just share something. I can, I, I can feel the emotion coming up and I'm 40, well, I just stick with 47 for now. Um, I only shared this the other day for the first time, maybe, in a, maybe ever, I'm not sure, outside of maybe my wife, but the most humiliating day in my entire existence on this earth, probably, probably there was one that came very, they're very similar, but very different in energy. Uh, the day I were I, the day at a very young age, I became the number one sales guy for the company I worked with in Ireland. And I never consider myself a sales guy. I really don't to this day. I'm more of a relationship person, and I don't I don't sell aggressively. It's just not my style. And I remember for the first time ever winning anything. I won the salesperson of the year award at a very young age, much to the dismay of some of the older you know sales reps that were in the business. And for whatever reason, and it never happened before, this the managing director asked me to read a piece of research that came out about the product that we were selling. And I literally, I think it was partially dyslexia, secondly, you know, partially the, 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 the anxiety of being asked to speak publicly or to read publicly. And I literally couldn't even pronounce the words the and 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 everything else. And it was just a guy called Pat Ham, who I worked with, this much older gentleman, leaned across, and he was, he was just such an, a huge and beautiful-hearted human being, just immediately recognized what was happening Switching to Shopify helps you sell smarter at every stage of your business. Take full control of your brand with your own custom online store. Wow, looks amazing. Find more customers with our easy-to-use marketing tools. Piece of cake. And let the best converting checkout on the planet do its thing. Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Switch to Shopify today for a $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. And he started literally whispering the words in my ear, like, and everyone could see it. And I wanted the ground to open up and swallow me. I wanted to resign. I wanted to just die that day. So it was the, the greatest, certainly in one day, it was the greatest high and low I'd ever experienced ever in my life. So when you share that story, that brief story, um, I can literally feel what that man went through. Where, where, where I have found the only way to bring a degree of peace, well, there's two things. Number one is I believe that story will haunt him for the rest of his life. Now, a lot of people disagree with that. They go, no, no, there's this type of therapy and there's this thing and, you know, you can do this and you can let go and you can write a letter to the, to the teacher and you can do it. I think a lot of us are trying to get rid of trauma and rid of pain. And yet if we could learn how to dissolve some of it and journey with the rest, so what I'm caught, what, what I'm really talking about is self-acceptance. So accepting that part of us, number one. Number two, and there's the this is the only way to get beyond this, and that is to turn it into something that has the capacity to impact other people. In other words, this man may never have shared that story before. And it might be the thing that it's so embarrassing for him and he has such shame attached to it. Why would he unearth it again? And why in God's name would he ever share it with somebody? I believe it's holding an energy and therefore holding that man back until the day he releases it into the world. And what happens is it gives somebody on the other side of the earth the permission to, to say, I'm not alone. Think about what just happened today. Think about what just happened in the last 10 minutes. You sh that man shared the story with you. What courage, amazing. It also shows his, his, his incredible relationship with you and how trusting he is of you. So an immense moment. You then bring it on the show today 
And then it encourages me to share something I had no interest, not no interest, but no idea I wanted or was willing to share. That's healing in real time. And that's the basis of something that we've created called One Last Talk, is that you bring the parts of you that you're ashamed of, that, you're, that you don't want to talk about. You bring them to the world, not for you. They're about you, but they're for the world. Because when you share your pain, when you share your discomfort, when you share your, 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 the, the regrets and the things that you're, you don't like about yourself, it frees you of those stories and those narratives. It frees somebody else to know they're not alone. And then that healing creates connection and cr- connection prevents or eradicates loneliness, which is a pandemic in the world today. Philip, this could end up being a six-hour show because you've just given me so much stuff I want to ask you about. Um, if I if just just try and pull on a few threads here, that last word you used about loneliness, which is why I think that really profound short statement you made at the head of the show around holding space for them, if I combine that with the fact that we're at a time in the world where it sounds like we'd never be more distracted. The pace of life which we put on ourselves has never been faster. Is, is all that busyness leading to loneliness where people don't hold space for others to be able to share? Is that what we're doing to ourselves, creating this loneliness? Is that kind of all packaging itself into a situation we're seeing today? In a way, yes, but I actually think the the busyness is, is as a result of the loneliness, which is which is kind of similar, but a little twist in what you're saying. In other words, you know, we're not addressing the loneliness, so we don't know how to address the loneliness. We don't want to feel the loneliness. We just don't want to feel. Period. Okay, which is a whole other conversation we could have, and therefore we stay busy. And anyone you meet that's busy is hiding from something. They're running from something. It, it's not a bear. It's not a. It's not a tiger. It is something within themselves that creates an uneasiness. And what ends up happening is they get distracted and they look at this mountain, they climb the mountain, assuming that'll answer the question for them. They get to the top of that mountain. Trust me, I've been there personally and professionally with people every single day of my life for the last 15 years. They get to the top of that mountain. They realize that they climbed the wrong mountain. But rather than stopping, and and this is what I do, I ask people to stop I create space to ask them the questions. They don't know how to ask themselves or they don't want to ask themselves. And then the question is, and the environment to go with it, the environment in order to allow that question to penetrate themselves at a level that they have been unwilling to allow, to ask themselves, what did they miss? What are they not looking at? Rather than just getting off the mountain and climbing another one. That's not the, that's not the answer. That's, 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 fucking shooting in the dark. That's, that's just guesswork. doesn't matter what the strategy is. And, and, and the problem is people are not stopping and they're not asking themselves the right questions. And I believe that in part, the reason we're busy is because we don't want to stop and feel the disconnectedness within ourselves or the disconnect between ourselves and our, our, our loved ones or the disconnectedness between this, the work we do and who we are. And if we are going to continue to go to work every single day or run a business every day, that doesn't bring us joy. There's no problem with that. I'm not one of these coaches that judges you for that and says, if you do that, you're a failure and everything else. And, and, and therefore you got to come and work with me. And I'm not, I don't, that's fine. No problem. But just reassess the expectations you have on the world and how it's meant to provide you as, with happiness. Make sure that you're not bringing the, 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 the lack of joy 
or the cost in your soul doing work that isn't meaningful and take those expectations and expect your kids, your wife, your husband, your cat to make up the balance because we're putting so much pressure on our partners to make us happy. And that's not what they signed up for. That's not what they signed up for. That's not their job and it's not possible. And I think one of the reasons there's so much pressure on relationships to be perfect and to be this and to be that is because people are unwilling to look at the parts of their own lives that they can deeply influence, not control because control is an illusion. They can deeply influence. And what they'd rather do is cite Donald Trump, the cat, or my wife or my husband as the reason I'm not happy and therefore make a change. And it doesn't solve the problem. They're not dealing with the underlying pattern that has been there most of their lives. And when they start to dig deep, there's a a quote that I've heard you say, which I think is quite profound, which fits in here as the next bit for us, Philip. You said, our greatest gift lies right next to our deepest wounds. Tell me, just extend what you just said and, and start to fill us in around that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us don't look at our past. I mean, I had this most beautiful lady two days ago, three days ago on a call. And it was a one-off call and she may or may never work with me again. And that's fine. My, my idea is, or, or the, the idea of this call is just to create space for 45 minutes to allow somebody to put something on the table. She runs a very successful business. She's got three beautiful kids. She lives in the Caribbean. From the outside looking in, everything is great. Like she's got her shit together and she has got the life that a lot of people would, would, would want to emulate. But she said to me, she said, there's just something missing. She says, I don't know what it is. And I said, well, neither do I, but let's try and figure it out together. And she says, I just think I need to get clearer on this business. And I said, well, what if it's not that? What if it's not just the business conversation? What if it's something in your personal life? Turns out that, and I, and I can share the story because I'm not obviously using her name. The first time she, she tried to commit, to commit suicide was when she was five years old. And that just gives you just a quick snippet into her life. And I, at the end, I said, so how many people have heard this story? She goes, nobody, just my husband and myself. And she's holding this ball of energy, this ball of shame, this ball of emotion inside of her. It's exhausting, number one. Holding that story inside of you is exhausting. The gentleman in the Bible studies and, and reading, holding that story, believe it or not, actually takes a tremendous amount of energy that could actually be used to focus on his business, impact his wife, his kids, whatever it happens to be. And secondly, is that actually with respect, it's, there's almost a selfishness of holding that trauma inside of you because you don't get it to out into the world so the world can benefit from that in, in itself. So until she lets this out, in and in in obviously in a very, not controlled manner, but in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an intentional way, it's going to haunt her forever because what ends up happening is it's driving a lot of what she thinks she wants. In other words, that fear is driving a lot of her business success. And what she's afraid to do is to dissolve some of that story, to open that story, because she's afraid that will weaken her and therefore not bring her success. But here's my experience. When you start to play with that, when you start to diminish that fear, that energy, not just does it bring you success, but it brings you focused success. It brings you success that actually is more aligned to who you are. So you're not just, you can achieve financial rewards, but you actually get fulfillment. Because what you typically end up doing at that point is actually making a bigger impact. And an awful lot of people who've experienced trauma are just not ready to hear this statement that actually the very thing that's happened to you, the very thing that was done to you, the very thing that you did to yourself or others, the greatest pain that you experienced actually is probably the greatest gift that you have. 
And depending on where you are and how raw the trauma is or how how much you've spent your life ignoring it, it will indicate to some extent how more how open you are to that reality. Switching to Shopify helps you sell smarter at every stage of your business. Take full control of your brand with your own custom online store. Wow, looks amazing. Find more customers with our easy-to-use marketing tools. Piece of cake. And let the best converting checkout on the planet do its thing. Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Switch to Shopify today for a $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. The reason I do what I do today is partially because I want to eradicate and fast track the pain that I personally experience for others. I want people to have great relationships with themselves and others. I want people to have meaningful work and impact the world because that's the thing that I didn't have. I know it might sound very simple, but in some way, my pain has informed who I am and why I am who I am It's today. a It's a challenging thing though, isn't it? I, 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 a guy said to me, I mean, he started his own business, wrote a book, and then named the business not him as a personal brand, and he's only ever going to work for himself, but he used another name for the company. And I, I quizzed him on, I said, why are you putting another layer in? Because if I hear you on the media, hear about your book, I'm going to look for your name. But instead, if I get you to do any work for me or a speech, it's got to go to this other company name. And it took a few months of talking through it with him. And then eventually he said to me one day, not even my wife knows this, but I don't much like myself. And that's why I don't like using my name because I'm almost trying to forget myself and put a barrier up because I don't I don't like what I see in the mirror. And it was quite a moment for him, number one, to share, but number two, for him to come to realisation because it must be, those moments must be really scary for people that you just mentioned, Philip. How do you take that fear and that scare away from people so they can actually know that there's a, if we just go through this, there's a gift at the end of this road. Yeah, we, we don't take it away we, we, because you can't remove the fear, okay? So fear is this absolute extraordinary energy that doesn't need Red Bull. It doesn't need sleep. It doesn't need water. It doesn't need to work out. It doesn't age, okay? If anything, it gets stronger with time. The problem is it's our relationship to fear. Anyone that can tell you, and I'm sorry if, 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 if you've had people on the show that can tell you they can eradicate fear. I, I, I disagree. I don't think you can. The fear will come back, albeit in a different way. I believe also the fear is the same, the fear of a bungee jump and the fear of doing a speech or the fear of sharing your story about not being able to read a passage at Bible study and standing up there and, 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 and sharing the fact that you're depressed. The, the, the fear is the same and it's, and, and, it's, and it's anchored in not being liked, not being seen, not being cared for, you know, being rejected. And yet the very thing that we're afraid of, we're doing to ourselves because we internalize a lot of that stuff. So the saying I have, and which I think is almost even more powerful than our, our greatest gift lies, lies next to our deepest wound is, is we give ourselves what we feel we deserve. So in life, it doesn't matter. You can have the greatest you know, mantras. You can have the greatest goals listed out. You can have the greatest vision board in the world. You can, you can roll out of bed, drop your feet on the ground in the morning and tell yourself 50 times you're amazing and that you're great and that you deserve X, Y, and Z. But you, you, you actually seek to validate how you feel at a deep spiritual fundamental level. So therefore, every step you take out into the world goes against your intellect. And that's why people turn around and go, why do I keep doing this with money? Why do I keep sabotaging my, the whole money conversation? Let's do another show on that someday. I mean, that's, that's, that conversation alone, your relationship to money is extraordinarily powerful. But 
why do I want, say I want love and I want an intimate relationship, but I can't open up to anybody and I, I constantly keep screwing it up or whatever it happens to be. So what's happening there is your intellect is telling you that everything's going to be awesome in essence, but your your soul, your, 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 your the, the spiritual way in which you hold yourself, how you feel about yourself is distorted. So it creates this conflict and civil war inside of you. So our job is never to eradicate the fear and take the fear away. Our, 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 our thing is to start to name the fear to get familiar with the fear, to see where the fear, its origin is. And often the origin is not, it rarely ever marks the spot, as Indiana Jones said. It's true. And then it's, 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 it starts to become really familiar with that fear and continue to move with that fear into the very thing that, and I don't feel, by the way, just so I'm clear, I'm not saying feel the fear and do it anyway. I don't believe that. I mean, I don't want to do a bungee <laughs> jump. Um, so do I therefore should go and do a bungee jump? No, I just intuitively feel my body should not go through a bungee jump because of back issues and whatever um, from, a, from an accident. So I don't feel that. I just think that people need to really understand the fear. And I don't feel fear is that big a deal. I think it's been blown up to this huge thing. I think actually regret and things like shame are way more poignant and poisonous in, in, in terms of the trajectory of our lives and, and inhibiting a sense of fluency that shouldn't just be exclusive to athletes and sport. You know, something I've picked up with you, Philip, is you seem like a very kinesthetic person in the way you process or learn about new information or process information you get access to. And then, so kinesthetic are the very feeling people, the visuals are the very, I need to see it colorful and the auditories are, talk me through it, I need to hear it, doesn't sound right. You use the word feel a lot even with your children, talking about your wife, Pauline, and you don't feel like you need to go and bungee jump. What's it feel like for you to trust yourself versus feeling like I'm lying to myself, I'm putting up a smoke screen, I'm actually dodging the truth. What does it feel like for Philip to trust himself? Well, number one, it's very new. <laughs> um, I feel I've spent most of my life trusting anybody but myself. And that is is very, very, very new in my life. Um, trust has always been something that I and many others, many others in the world see as something that lies outside of ourselves. Do I tr- trust my bank manager? Do I trust the babysitter? Do I trust X, Y, and Z, my business partner, et cetera? Uh, very few of us have actually internalized that and brought it back to ourselves and say, do I trust myself? And the answer to that question would have been absolutely 100% categorically no big, massive N-O, to the point where at one point I went to my own mother and asked her if I could change my name when I was quite young, because I felt if I could change my name, I could change who I was. If I could change my name, I could change my identity. If I could change my name, I wouldn't have to associate with the person that I didn't like that I saw in the mirror every single day. And what I finally realized looking back is that the name was just um, a label. I have an obscene amount of trust towards myself, but I I hope, and and only you can decide this because I don't think I'm the best judge of this, I'm too close, is that it, it, and maybe on occasion it leaks into arrogance, but it's just this inner sense of calmness and a sense of knowing. And and please don't take that as I know it all because I promise you I don't. Anybody I work with knows that I'm not attached to being right, um, but I am attached to, you know, Getting to that, getting that person to a place that feels 
um, feels very intuitively, um, you know, connected to them. But but self trust is something that I've spent my whole life pursuing in some way, shape, or form. Maybe when I didn't even know it. And right now, I can tell you, I've never trusted myself more. And the feeling sometimes it, it's not. No one can debate it from you. It's it's almost like you know it so deeply that you, why would you even put it up for debate? It's not even for debate. And a quick example I give you of this is Stanilov Petrov. Do you know who that is? Stanilov Petrov, and most people don't, and I think I'm pronouncing his name more or less correctly. Stanilov Petrov. Um, I'm paraphrasing slightly. I can't remember the exact details. But in, in the very early 80s, when tensions were high between the United States and Russia, he was sitting at an early missile detective unit. It was the most sophisticated piece of technology on earth. They said it was flawed. In other words, there was no way that this thing would read a missile warhead coming into Russia without being 100% correct. But if, but, but even if, even if it did, that you ran a diagnostics and it would basically, you know, show whether this machine was off for whatever reason. And at whatever hour in the morning, the alarm went off. This man, Stanilov Petrov, was standing uh, or sitting at his station. It basically indicated a warhead was on its way. And within minutes, it indicated there was at least three to four, maybe even five additional warheads on the way towards Russia. His single job was to, 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 to run the diagnostic to make sure that the machine was what it was saying was accurate. That was his, his sole job at that time, followed very quickly and immediately by a phone call upstairs to say, we are under attack. What do you want me to do? Which typically would actually create a chain of events where they would retaliate before the nukes would hit. He didn't make that phone call. And there was no, there was nothing in his training that indicated that he should not. Everything that he knew about his job was he had to ring upstairs. He is now being cited as the man who prevented a world war. And in all the interviews that he was ever given that I could find, one thing that stood out profoundly for me, the guy said, why didn't you make the call? Why didn't you report this? He said, I just had a feeling in my gut that the missiles were not coming. And the research that is coming online with call it intuition, call it your gut, it's something that if you go back to our early parts of our conversations, is people are not dealing with their their anger. They're not dealing with trauma. And therefore, they don't trust who they are. They're not accessing that deeper spiritual well within themselves. And therefore, they don't connect with that gut feeling as much. And the world today is becoming accelerated in its reward system towards the intellect and not honoring the intuitive sense of us. And yet, if you look at history, intuitiveness, gut, and knowing, a deep sense of knowing has been there forever and we're born with it. It is one of, in my opinion, is probably the greatest gift that we have been given, every one of us. And yet a lot of us are not using it. And it's just this sense of absolute knowing that what you, what you want to do or what you need to do or what's coming next, you just have to do. And when you follow it, in my personal opinion, it never goes wrong. We interviewed Bronnie Ware, who wrote the, five, the top five regrets of the dying. And I've heard you talk about the fact that that may be true, but your view is that we are living with regret. Why, why do we surround, we, we see smart people every day who will die with these regrets. Why do we live with stuff that we're going to regret? Why don't we take, what's stopping us from taking action, Philip? This has been a very powerful and profound show. We all hear this stuff. Why, why are we living with regrets? Oh, what a, what a great question. 
I really commend your questions. Yeah, I really do. I really, really do. And I don't say that often. Um, they're so they're so thoughtful. Um, God, I'm feeling a lot of emotion suddenly. Um, I think we'd rather suffer. Um, I think we'd rather suffer pain internally than run the risk of having any pain externally. Uh, I've never said actually never said that. It's just coming out, so I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that means. It's just coming right through me right now, and it's it's just we'd rather suffer in silence and hold regrets and hold things and shames and things that we have done and things that we haven't done that haunt us at our core, rather than run the risk of allowing that out into the world because we would much rather suffer in silence and and internalize that pain than allow anyone else know that that's who we are. And that pain and that and that suffering that we carry holds us back at a fundamental level. And it, it, and it prevents people from truly connecting with us, like really connecting. And I've seen this at a profound level. When we go into, we don't work with a lot of organizations, but the odd organization that comes along, if we feel it's very connected and they're, and they're mission-based, and I don't mean mission as in religious mission, I mean they've got a mission in this world they want to achieve and they want to leave the world in a better place. When we work with them, we create these environments, I won't go into any details about it, where people turn around and literally say, my God, John, let's say John's the accountant or John's the engineer or John's the receptionist or Mary, whatever, it doesn't matter. John, I always thought you were an asshole. But when I now know your story, when I feel your story coming from you, when I see the pain in your eyes, I understand why you've been defensive. I understand why you're angry. And they connect at such a deep level. And I, I'm not sure if I'm making sense right now, but I just think that we it's okay for us to suffer. Um, but in actual fact, the ironic thing is that it's the opposite. It's when we share our truth with other people, that's when they fully see us and therefore have the opportunity to fully accept us. And that is the time we actually get the very thing we long for, which is to be seen and to be accepted for who we are and not for what the world wants us to be. With the living with regrets, dying with regrets, have you, Philip, ever faced your own mortality? Yes, twice. Uh, once um, I, was, I, was, I found myself unconscious in a whitewater rafting river uh, in northern Turkey. Uh, we shouldn't have been on the river. It was a flood, but we were already in the canyon, so we had to get out. And it was a five-day trip. One person was resuscitated on the river. Three people, two, I think it was three people, walked off the river and refused to get back in the boat. But we had to keep going to get um, ourselves back down. And uh, we hit a we hit a set of rapids, enormous rapids. Uh, I I got a, I flipped out of the boat. Uh, I remember grabbing the the rescue canoe at one point, and then I woke up on the on the on this side of the river about a mile from everybody else because they were all swept down river. Somebody pulled, I don't know exactly how I got out of the water. I, I think somebody pulled me, but a local was, you know, tipping me and pushing me and prodded my face to see if I was alive. Th that was pretty close. And I was almost killed by an elephant in Nigeria. Um, many years ago, I was chased and had to outrun it. I didn't actually outrun it, but I had to, you know, basically get away from an elephant. So I came, I had a knife pulled on me, but that actually wasn't that serious. But those two times I genuinely felt, uh, certainly with the rafting, I was, I, I'd really come close to dying. And I would almost wish everyone on earth experienced that. And yet there's a part of me wishes no one on earth experienced mm. that. And I feel that when you face your own mortality, it frees you at a level because you don't have a whole lot else to lose. Um, because I wasn't the guy to do what I'm doing. I was never going to be doing what I'm doing. I mean, this is the last thing on this planet 
that I imagined I would be doing. Uh, and yet most people <laughs> want to hear this Hollywood story that, oh yeah, when I was four, I had a vision that I was going to be doing exactly what I'm doing. And, you know, I used to create these vision boards and it's all worked out miraculously well and I'm perfect because it's bullshit and it wouldn't be, tr- it's not true. With facing that mortality, today, if you look in the mirror of truth, does anything scare you? Walking down the street someday and bumping into the person that I, that I could have been. Um, the idea that I don't fully show up to even even what I'm what I know because what I what we typically do when we, we think of I see this all the time with coaching clients when we start to imagine what's possible for our lives we typically and and, and it's it's not a mistake it's not a, not I don't mean to be judgmental but it's something we just do we all look through the lens of who we are what we've done um, and how we're seen in the world before we imagine what's possible for ourselves my job is to remove that lens and say okay what if what if you're not an accountant what if you don't have three kids what if you don't have a dog called Katie and what if you don't live in Boulder what would you do then? And it's very difficult to separate that. But when you really, really can separate the things you've done, the qualifications you have, the work you've been done, you really believe that those things are not defining you and you start looking beyond those things. It's extraordinary what emerges in terms of what's possible for ourselves. But it's those attachments that hold us back. Do I... Do I? Um, you know, yeah, you know, meeting the person that I could have been and knowing that I left some some something on the ice that wasn't explored. And I also feel, and I, I want to be very honest here right now, is I feel that I haven't, there's still this part of me that my greatest work is yet to come. And as soon as I say that, there's an associated fear with that um, because I do feel as I step out into the world and do the work that I'm continuing to do and to keep reinventing because to me, what I do will never change. How I do it needs to constantly man- you know, move and shift and shape. Um, but I'm scared because I'm scared of, re- of rejection. I'm scared of the world rejecting me for, for who, who I am as I continue to grow. You've talked about the fact that you are looking to simplify, continually simplify things in your world and you as- align with or associate with the minimalist movement which is making more space for those things that truly matter and give us joy. Bruce Lee, the famous Hollywood actor, movie star, said, it's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessential. What's something that Philip has gotten rid of in the last, say, 100 days or 150 days? What have you got hacked away at that was unessential that's made space for what matters? Yeah, I think the one thing I, I really struggle with is 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 you know whether whether everyone agrees with this or not. Everything I'm doing, you know, ultimately is designed to make the world a better place, to 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 show people how capable they are to make this world a better place. And my work has really pivoted in the last two years um, to start working with people who want to leave the world in a better way than they found it. Uh, whether it's coaches, whether it's leaders, whatever, and to to help them be the best they can be. And I'm actually okay being in the shadows, which is something that I, I thought I'd struggle more with. In fact, I actually love it. I love being in the shadows and watching somebody else grow. Um, something that actually, it's less a material thing, but it's more a, because I think that's actually very, very, dis- something worth uh, distinguishing and, and, and separating is that when we're letting go of stuff and creating space, often we think about, you know, whether I clear up my books or I clear out the garage, but actually there's a lot of mental and emotional space that's also available to us to clear out. Uh, for me, the thing that has become really super clear, which seems to have accelerated over the last, you know, couple of months is this idea that I'm not here to save everybody. 
And that when I'm in an event or even on a call with somebody who simply is there to argue and they don't want to learn, and it's not that I have all the answers, but they're there to fight and they're there to be disruptive. And they're there to be seen to be doing the work, but they don't actually want to change. Um, that I can let go of them at a much more accelerated rate, that I still hold possibility for them, but I'm not there to get them to, I'm not there to drag them to water. Um, that I'm here to say, here, this, here's the possibilities for you. Here, let's have the conversation. But if they don't want to come, uh, and that's freed me up immensely because I used to hold on too tight to getting everyone to see how amazing they could be. But I realized over the last two years, but accelerated over the last couple of months, is that some people just are not ready for that. And by spending too much attention on them and fighting them, I'm missing the 10 other people just behind them with their hands up saying, hey, I'm ready. But when you're ready finishing arguing with this guy, I'll be over here. But at that point, it could be too late. So I'm not sure if I've answered your question directly, but I'm, I'm attempting to. But that's that's big for me right now. Just one final question uh, before I throw it to Robbo. You have created this movement called One Last Talk, where people who may not be professional speakers, but would like a forum to stand in front of others and deliver a speech, which is basically if they had their last 15 minutes, what would their speech be about? My query, and it's, it's such a great concept that now sounds like it's going to become your book. My question is, how has your one last talk changed in your mind with what you would say or write about in the last 12 months? So since you've done this, you've been doing it. And once we create this thing and we talk about it, we explain it, we start promoting it, and you hear other people, I'm just wondering whether that has an impact on you and whether your one last talk has changed in the last year. Yeah, I haven't thought about that. I think it probably will have, will have changed a little bit. I think also actually what's really emerging for me is what I've realized listening to exactly what you're saying and, and connecting emotionally with it is actually, if actually if anything, believe it or not, my one last talk is is irrelevant um, and way more irrelevant than it used to be. Not that it doesn't have any power to impact, not that it's not somewhat relevant to me, but actually, in fact, what's emerging for me is that what's super relevant for me is the one last talks that are being given around the world and you know, soon, to, soon to be, I think, 11 cities um, by men and women, that that's become the focus, that I've realized that I'm the conduit um, and, and the vessel to create the environment with the support of our amazing One Last Talk local leaders in different cities. Um, and, I, and I feel that actually the more I think about it, my job is not here to, to deliver my One Last Talk or to or strengthen it or deepen it. It's actually to continue to work on the evolution of the movement that we're trying to create and the book. Because we did write a book called One Last Talk, which is already out. The new book is One Last uh, one last book, uh, which is, is the same idea is that if you had one last book to, to write, what would it be? Um, so I'm not sure that answers your question, but that, that's what's kind of emerging for me right now is my one last talk is just not as, a, as, as important as it used to be. No, I think it answers it perfectly. And I think it just sums up the whole show so far, Philip, that you are in a place now where you want to be of service. You don't need to be on the stage. You want to be creating a forum to be of service for other people to find their one last talk, find the wounds, address mm. them, look at their own story. They, uh, so I think, you know, what you just said sums up the whole interview beautifully. And I think uh, we're appreciative that you got beyond 
Robbo's faux pas of saying you were British and not Irish at the head of the show and you stayed on the line. I think that in itself is something to be admired. In my own defence, I was only halfway through my first cup of coffee at 6 o'clock in the morning. So, you know, yes, for those Patreon listeners, it will be on the cutting room floor. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Philip, could could we impose for 90 seconds of your time for me to throw to the portly man behind the panel for a quick segment to finish this up? Absolutely. Robbo's Nifty 90. Probably the biggest challenge you'll face this week, mate, but let's see how you go, all right? Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> let's start the clock. What was the last movie you watched? Uh, the King's Speech. What's one thing that really annoys you? And be honest. One thing that really annoys me when I meet people who just uh, refuse, just seem to be defined and refusing to grow when they've got so much potential. Um, I, I feel that my heart sinks and, and I also get really annoyed. Wow, that's a great answer. Um, what's your favorite sport and why? Soccer, 100%, because it is the greatest game that has ever been invented. Uh, I didn't play it as a kid, but I've, I've, I get to work with some pros right now, and it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary game. Finish this sentence. I never get tired of. I never get tired of exploring the capacity of an, another human being, whether they know it or not. Uh, what's something you need to stop doing? Beating myself up as a parent. Three words you would use to describe yourself. Passionate, provocative, and human. If you could get a ticket to anywhere in the world for free, where would you go and why? The Amazon jungle uh, on my own because um, it, it always represented the place of adventure. Indiana Jones was my, my hero growing up and he was everything I felt I was not. Um, wow. And Indiana Jones uh, and, 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 the, and the rainforest or the, the jungle are synonymous. Um, so I'd go there on my own. Wow. Well, there you go. Harrison Ford has a common connection between you and I because Han Solo was my hero when I was, ah, <laughs> when I was growing up. So we're not far removed. Uh, if your house was on fire and your family and loved ones were all safe, what three things would you grab to take with you? Um, I, I probably wouldn't take anything. Um, yet I would have answered that very differently two or three years ago. But if I have to play the game, which I appreciate, uh, I'd probably take a painting that was uh, of a 5,000-year-old of a, of a road, which is in front of me right now. Wow. Which is a road I bring, um, I bring my clients on every year um, in Brave Soul in Ireland. I would bring that. Um, looking around myself here right now, I would probably bring actually a photograph of myself when I was 10 years old, which is a whole story behind that. And um, my favorite pair of shoes, red, red, red shoes. Red shoes, not not Dorothy's red shoes. No, no, they're worse. <laughs> There's no place like home. There's no place <laughs> like home. I was going to say I would take the picture of the Queen, which I have hanging up over my uh, mantelpiece. Well, that's that's obviously an internal joke. <laughs> 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 All right, last question and the most important one. You wake up in the morning, your mojo's just not working, you're not feeling it today. What's the song that you turn on on Spotify, headphones, MP3 player, whatever your weapon of choice is to get your mojo going for the day? Where the streets have no name. Oh. I open up one email from somebody who who actually thinks I've made an impact in their life and I read that at the same time and I realise in that moment with tears rolling down my face that my journey is not about me. I'm here to serve humanity Get over it, get back on the horse, and it's a new day. The 
besides a great song, I have got to say that is the most thoughtful Nifty 90 we've done in six seasons, mate. Thank you so much. That was incredible. Very welcome. Well, thank you for creating the space, guys, for me today because I've really thoroughly enjoyed this. You've moved me deeply and I've shared stuff today that I've never shared before. Stuff has come out of me and that's because of us together. It's not just me. Um, you know, I, I feel safe. I feel heard. Um, uh, you know, you guys are very respectful and that's the number one thing I look for in any engagement in my life. So thank you. Do you know, it was our privilege and honour and I honestly could sit and talk to you because it could be long form for three and a half hours and I don't think I'd ever get to the bottom of my page of all the stuff I wanted to ask you about because we are a quarter of the way through <laughs> all the stuff. And I said to Robbo before we started recording, <laughs> this is going to be a great show. This Just bear with me because I've got a lot of stuff to get through and uh, I had to edit it down. So I've got to say, I almost ordered my second coffee via Uber. <laughs> <laughs> This is a test of the Mojo Broadcast System, the Mojo Radio Show. I think, and you and I have talked about this before, I think this is one of those shows that warrants saving and going back to listen to it again and again. And I would say if there's one thing I talk about this is just do the work. I, I think Philip's stuff is really quite profound. And some of the conversations I've had with people where you get behind the curtain and you call them on what's going on and you start to trace back a story that they have carried with them for a decade, two decades. Once you bring that story to the surface, gee, I've I've had some amazing conversations with people since we spoke to Philip. Mm, mm. But I need you to explain one thing to me. The one last talk thing didn't quite click with me. This is an event that Philip started and it started quite small and now it's sort of growing into a thing. And one last talk is the opportunity for someone to stand up on stage. I think they get 15 minutes and it, it's a place where you go, if you only had one last talk in your life and you wanted to say all you wanted to say in 15 minutes, what would you say? And it, it's essentially a, an event or a place where people come together to speak their truth. And there's no apologies, no nothing. Is This is the last chance I've ever got to speak what would I want to get off my chest? Who would I Who would I be talking to? What would I be saying? And it's just a, a place where people can get up and share deep secrets, thoughts, opportunities, and uh, in a place that is non-judgmental, I suspect. And it started as an event that he ran. It's now grown into a thing. And I think there are videos of it now. So it's kind of this, it's kind of a movement now. It's called One Last Talk. I kind of, I, I'd have to stop and think for days about how I would fill that 15 minutes because I, I could probably fill 30 hours, I would think. Yeah, but you talk a lot of rubbish. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> no, but isn't, it, but isn't it the value of it though? If you said you've got 15 minutes, it's almost, it's one thing I love about Twitter was you had, initially you had 140 characters. So you had to take what would be five sentences and crystallise it down into 140 characters. It made you be, yeah. it made you value words. It made you have to think and cherish the statements you made as opposed to just blurting stuff out. So I think the fact that you would take 30 hours and put into 15 minutes is part of the value because that would be the most profound 15 minutes. Um, And, you know, the sad thing is that there is somebody today, regardless of what day you're listening to this, there is somebody who's been given the news that they only have a certain amount of time to live and they are currently going over all those thoughts in their mind. So it's 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 something that we put off until that moment. 
what he's saying is why leave it to the last moment? Why not do it now? It's, I think it's kind of profound. This kind of ties in a little bit and might be a good way, a nice way to end up this little part of the segment. I saw a thing on Facebook on the weekend. There was an, an Irish gentleman passed away a couple of weeks ago and in his will he had left a recording that he said no one was to listen to until the day of his burial. He was actually, he wasn't cremated, he was buried in the ground. So there's video of the coffin in the ground, six foot under, and they play this recording and it opens with bagpipes. Uh, and then the, but then about 30 seconds in, the bagpipe stops and this guy's recorded himself, obviously banging on a table going, hello, hello, is anybody out there? <laughs> And he's naming all the people that he knew would be around his gravesite and all that sort of stuff. And thinking about what you're thinking about now, just in terms of being prepared for what was coming, I just thought that was very clever. Something Billy Connolly would do. The Mojo Radio Show. So there's been an Irish theme to this show. The last couple of minutes. <laughs> uh, so I think it would. Be, it is incumbent upon us to finish with some Irish rock would it not? Indeed it would. Lola, massive names from the music industry. Island. Islands in the street. That is what we are. No one in Do we need Lola? I know exactly where you're going. We're at.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirdwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.